0: Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. The purpose of Pedagog is to promote diverse voices at various institutions and help foster community and collaboration among teachers of writing. Pedagog is committed to facilitating conversations that move across institutions and positions and is designed to help celebrate the labor teachers do inside and outside the classroom. I love having conversations with teachers who have taught for decades, who are well-established in the field. Who have made great contributions to teaching and writing, but I also love talking to teachers who are new to teaching, who are in the middle of creating and innovating and establishing their own voice, their own pedagogies and practices. I find these conversations dynamic and energetic. One of my hopes for creating this podcast was to use it as a platform for graduate students and emerging teacher scholars. The first bonus episode is dedicated to reimagining English graduate education. If you haven't listened to it, go to pedagogpodcast.com and check it out. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Early on, I imagined this podcast as a real opportunity to move across institutions and positions to celebrate graduate students and their work and their labor, to bring attention to that work and labor, to bring more attention to that work and labor, because really I want to support others. I genuinely want to see teachers and students secede, and I want to use this platform to help them secede. I want to see them in positions that provide opportunities for them to secede, structures and systems that work for them, not against them. I think back over the past 10 years, and all I see is how much I've been supported, how much others have helped me learn and grow as a teacher and writer. I can name a lot of people, I'm sure we all can. And you know, I believe that's what makes this community incredibly special. We are committed to helping each other. In this episode, I have the opportunity to speak to two graduate students and emerging teacher scholars. Kyle Larson is a PhD candidate in composition and rhetoric at Miami University and a co-founder and moderator of NextGen. He researches counterpublic and social movement rhetorics. And please welcome Dana Comey, a PhD student at the University of Kansas. Her research interests include rhetorical genre studies, digital rhetoric, and technical communication, with a particular focus on community-centered design as social advocacy. Thank you, Kyle and Dana, for joining us. I want to start by giving you both space to talk about what you're doing what you're discovering researching writing teaching anything that excites you about the labor you're producing
1: yeah so there are three projects right now i'm really really excited about so for the last 2 years i've been surveilling these white nationalists online they have they have rhetorical style guides databases of copy and paste responses they swarm online platforms with copy and paste Rhetorics. So one of my things that I, I, I research is counterpublics and counterpublic rhetoric activism and social movements. And and I brought on uh, Dr. Guy McHenry from Communication Studies uh, to help me with this article too. But one of the, the the frustrations I get with counterpublic scholarship is how how sometimes it'll apply to like Black feminist counterpublics and then people then say neo-Nazi counterpublics. And to me, if power is embedded in your framework at all, there's no way you can talk about that. So this article is about what we're calling parasitic publics to intervene in that. The second thing that I have going on right now is I worked with the Black student movements on my campus to revive a program from 1981. A colleague of mine did archival research. Um, the composition office and found that in 1981, the Black Student Action Association at Miami University embedded anti racist panels in the first year writing classes to disrupt anti black myths. So I was working with the Black student movements on my campus and I handed one of the organizers the archival documents. She read through them. She was like, let's revive these. We revived them for last fall as Racial Consciousness 101 and we had embedded them into the 85 courses had eight panelists doing really awesome and radical stuff. The university tried to shut it down. They were unsuccessful in their arguments. And so we're redoing those right now. And I'm really excited about that. And the third thing that the next gen code of conduct, although we hate that, terminology and we're going to replace it you know we've been slowly building our cultural community and you know people have commented pretty regularly on the atmosphere and the, the rhetoric and the uplift that happens on next gen and so how do we embed that into the structure of NextGen so that we become a model for the field?
0: Dana, what about you? What excites you about the work that you're doing right now? I know you're in a little bit different stage. You just finished coursework. So I'm curious as to what you're investigating and discovering and potentially even how that is impacting your teaching.
2: I'm reading for my doctoral exams right now, and my key areas of focus are rhetorical genre studies and then tech com with a particular interest in community-centered design. Design is advocacy. So those are the areas that I'm reading in right now. I sort of decided that that's what I was doing based off of where I went basically in the projects and coursework. So it definitely came into graduate school with a plan of what I was going to do, scrapped that, and then found out during coursework what I gravitated towards and what really interested me. And so, yeah, I I really love um, some of the intersections between RGS and, and tech comm. They're, they're broad connections right now, um, I think. You know, I'm excited to have my dissertation proposal good to go because I'll have much more of a succinct way of talking about this. But some of the connections I see that interest me are with some of the public genres and community work, thinking about, um, you know, so much of RGS is understanding how writing's happening in real communities in particular spaces and understanding issues of power and privilege and access through like a critical genre approach one of the things that i like about techcom is that especially through the user centered design human centered design and usability feels like it pairs really well with that to be able to talk about, oh, well, here's how you can design and redesign things in order to promote access. Right now, we're in unit two for my tech comm class, and they are working on an instruction set of some kind. We're moving through a design thinking process throughout the entire project, which means that at the very beginning of the project, they have to figure out some sort of community partner, whether that be an individual or a group of people that they want to talk to, to try to actually identify a project through conversation with people from the beginning, not just choosing a group and saying, okay, well, I think that they would want an instruction set for this, right? So that sort of empathizing stage um, and then moving through the design process. And there's lots of ways that they can do this and there's lots of ways that they can't within the space of the class and especially that eight-week semester but trying to collaborate and work with a community partner rather than assume needs and assume a solution before they like really understand the problems that's one way that we sort of do that in the tech class and a lot of that then involves talk about genre because uh and medium right like the sort of well what are you hoping to them accomplish or do or understand or gain access to okay so what kind of text responds to that those needs
0: i mean the work you both just shared is exciting energizing fresh new and i love it graduate school is such a good place for discovery and innovation and it has great exploratory value i'm thinking about how coursework and reading for exams while exhausting and laborious helps spur creativity But you aren't just students and researchers or writers, you're also teachers. And when I say grad school is exhausting and laborious, it's really because you're being asked to do and be so many things at once. Teaching, coursework, thesis, dissertation, writing, campus involvement, national organizations, professional service, workshops, extracurricular activities and events and more. I want to recognize that labor and really bring light to those conditions. Even though you are a part of a community and cohort, I still feel like it's easy to feel the sense of isolation or the sense of being alone in the midst of that graduate school community. I guess I want to frame this next question with first an understanding that your grad school experience and labor is unique and we can't oversimplify that labor And we can't just say what works for you will work for someone else. So with that being said, I'm really curious as to what has surprised you the most about grad school labor.
2: I would say that when I was an undergrad, and I think that this is a pretty common experience of a a lot of people in my program who are now in graduate school, I was involved in everything. I felt like I sort of got into the English department discovered that that was my place. And, you know, was involved in the the lit magazine was involved in the medieval studies club, you know, like, I, I felt like I was involved in everything. And that was great. And really, all of those involvements helped prepare me for graduate school. But you can't do that in graduate school. Like, um, I think that that was one of the things that I realized my first year, you know, I got involved in a bunch of different things. And by my second year, I really had to think about what was sustainable to participate in what um, actually energized me and what allowed me to be a good teacher and be a good researcher and be involved in meaningful service. And so I think one thing that surprised me was that I ended up Needing to sort of draw back or say no to things so that I could invest in in a smaller number of things, which again to me coming from undergraduate was was very counterintuitive. I felt like there was you know going into graduate school sort of a sort of like oh yeah I'm going to do rec comp and here's kind of what I think that is, and then actually taking courses and going oh okay there's actually you know a lot of routes and now even being sort of in that space between rec comp and and tech com, right, sort of negotiating that is that similar kind of feeling. Like, yeah, like, where's, where's my home base, but where am I also going to, like, pursue projects that are, like, really genuinely interesting to me, and that might lead me in directions that I, I didn't expect, so.
0: You know, Kyle, I'm wondering if we can Continue on this conversation of labor conditions, but turn it just a little bit as you're reflecting on your own labor conditions and your own graduate school experience. I'm wondering if you could share what piece of advice has been most helpful to you in the midst of the different roles and different activities that you're a part of.
1: And this advice could be from a
0: mentor, it could be something that you discovered in graduate school.
1: You know, one of the best advice I got was from Jason Palmieri during the graduate training practicum, you know, when I first entered my master's at Miami. And it was to forgive yourself, like, because, you know, as a graduate student, like I've experienced times when, you know, I could have addressed something better or, you know, I failed to address something or I wasn't able to do that reading. Uh, because of my schedule and so just to forgive yourself and not beat yourself up over it but also I think it's important to be self-critical in that process like just don't forgive yourself and move on but really like for instance if you if you miss a certain reading ask yourself what is that reading you know and what is my relation to that discourse if you're studying transfer and you're missing Naisha Green's readings on being an anti racist accomplice, then that's a problem. That is, if you do not allocate time in your schedule to learn from communities that are not a part of your own and you're only into what is directly related to your research, I think that that is an issue that you need to actively address and learn from. I think there are a lot of times where graduate students feel guilty especially first gen graduate students about not being able to do all the readings, but it still makes us feel bad. So I think just forgiving yourself and learning from the process and growing from that.
0: Dana, what about you? What advice has been most helpful through your graduate school experience?
2: Yeah, I think as a graduate student, so I had um, my undergraduate mentor um, at Whitworth, which is my previous institution. Um, My mentor, John Pell, said this. uh, So basically, my first time at C's, I went as an undergrad for the undergrad poster presentation with my best friend, Audrey, and we were so nervous and so freaked out. And John, our mentor, said, the stakes have never been so low. <laughs> like You'll be fine. Um, and I don't think I listened at that moment, but that like phrase, like the stakes have never been so low has actually been really helpful to me as a graduate student, um, not to sort of dismiss the the real stress and anxiety and fear that comes with graduate school, but to reframe some of that within a wider like You know, I came into graduate school and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a professor, but after the first year, like I knew that that's what I wanted to do um, and that's what I'm working towards. And so with all of those really scary sort of milestones where you can learn so much from grad students who have done it before, you can read books, you can, you know... Get advice from your advisor, but at a certain point, you just have to like experience it. I always sort of say that to myself to <laughs> reframe it as in am like, yeah, like taking my doctoral exams will be stressful and I might feel really nervous and anxious leading up to it. But doing that's going to help me then be eligible to be able to work on my dissertation proposal, which will also be, you know, stressful. And so sort of reframing it in that, like, this is a much wider, like, lifetime of milestones. So I think as a graduate student, that's been helpful because it sort of helps avoid the, like, this is the end of the world crisis feeling.
0: You know, one thing I've been thinking about here recently a lot is reimagining English graduate education, and what gets done in graduate courses, and whether or not that work that some faculty are asking students to do is setting them up for both academic and non-academic success. So I've really been contemplating what graduate programs should be doing in graduate courses, and whether or not potentially the traditional, here's a graduate course on blank topic, here are readings, write a seminar paper, is the best fit for maybe our own values in composition studies and writing studies and whether or not those values help out graduate students. So I'm curious as to whether either of you have any ideas of how to potentially reimagine the graduate classroom and the potential directions, I guess, a graduate classroom could take?
1: That's a great question. I think a, a few different ways, you know, there could be different ways to structure a class. Like if you're doing like a writing program administration class, is it really helpful to do a seminar paper on something you may not have experience with, especially something that's so context specific? Um, so in what different ways can we structure the genre of the graduate seminar to better fit the kind of material that we're engaging with. If we're doing a public rhetoric seminar, does it really make sense to do a seminar paper? It may, maybe as a midterm, but in what ways are we engaging and learning from the public too? Where are those knowledge practices coming into our graduate seminar? In what ways can we challenge the dominant genre of the graduate seminar uh, to better account for the material we're engaging with or what is pedagogically... Most conducive. At the end of the day, I think the innovative structure would challenge us in in interesting and new ways and help us explore ourselves and our material in different ways. And so, what ways can we play with that structure? Treating students as thinking partners is a very important practice and an uplifting one for us because we all come with knowledges that the institution may not value. And so how can we bring those knowledges to bear upon how we're learning and what we're learning?
0: I think one thing to be mindful of is that all of us, teachers and graduate students, researchers and writers, are a part of our local communities, that we are community members and that innovation happens outside of academia in the classroom. Both of you are deeply invested in your local communities. And I've seen graduate students lead some incredible initiatives and bring energy and a sense of commitment to partnering communities with the university. And this work isn't for academic purposes. It isn't for research or writing. It's for helping create sustainable relationships and really better communities. It's about caring about where we are and the spaces we inhabit. I was hoping we could end with this. Dana, I know you are doing this type of work in Lawrence, Kansas. Do you mind sharing
2: more about that work and its purposes? It's basically a, through the ramen restaurant in town, Ramen Bowls. Ramen Bowls donates noodles and ingredients. And so we just have to go out and do like a quick grocery trip to supplement all that and then make sure that everything's set up a collaboration with an organization outside of the university that's basically really interested in promoting food security and addressing food insecurity. Um, Students, both at Haskell Indian Nations University and University of Kansas, there was a a small scale study, but one that came out a few years ago that found that I think it was like 40% of students at KU experience food insecurity at some level. And so it's just a once a week ramen dinner, like a ramen buffet that students can just show up. They can pay $2 if they want to, but there's literally no pressure to do so and just basically go through like do-it-yourself ramen buffet Um, and there's cupcakes and it's just a totally like fun event just like you would have on campus we have a usually about 60 to 75 students that come each week consistently, both undergrad and grad. And so what I do, um, I'm the volunteer coordinator. So I basically make sure that undergrads who need to get service hours or just want to volunteer, that is kind of all organized because we normally need like three-ish people in addition to myself to make it run smoothly. And then I basically just make sure that the ramen bar is set up, make sure that, like, because they cook their own noodles, make sure the noodle station doesn't, like, overflow or, like, something terrible happens um, during the night. And then basically make sure um, a big part of the, the job is sort of scanning the room, making sure people are comfortable. And so that kind of work, again, super separate from working on a committee, Um, but still involved with campus um, you know you get to meet other grad students from other departments which has been really really fun gotten to meet a lot of students from school. it's one of the few spaces I've seen in Lawrence actually where there's KU students and school students like consistently hanging out in one space and so it's like a once a week basically six hour commitment that's really really energizing and it's great because it reminds me basically that I'm a community member in addition to regardless of sort of my academic role which I think is really important to have that perspective as a graduate student because it's such a precarious stressful situation and your identity is sort of like in flux always so that's yeah that's basically what uh and it's called ikigai so that's what ikigai noodles basically is